read to you, this is sort of our anchor text for the series. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 1, just two verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of those who've gone before us, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're running this race and there's a particular way if we're the stories of all those who've gone before us, the cloud of witnesses, as it were. And um, yeah, that's what we're up to. So you guys ready to look at Noah? All right. Um, so the Noah context, Hebrews chapter 11, Noah's context is given to us in Hebrews 11 verse 7. Let me read that to you now. It says, by faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear constructed an ark, a big boat, for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This morning, we're going to talk about Noah and the fear of God. Who's excited? I'm not, I'm not, I'm like super nervous. Um, full disclosure, if you were to like give me, hey, what do you want to preach about, Simon? Anything. Crowd of 10,000, go. What's on your heart? Definitely not this. This is not my go-to. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying we shouldn't think about it. I'm not saying it's not in the Bible, but just totally, totally honest. I, I don't really think a lot about or want to think a lot about the fear of God, which is why I'm so grateful that we're doing this teaching series, because we need to. It's actually like a, a mega theme throughout Scripture, and if we don't engage with it, I, I think there's, we create a vacuum, a theological vacuum for how we understand who God is. So actually, you know, I'm, I'm playing a little bit. I don't really mind talking about the fear of God, but it, it, it's just even saying it out loud feels a little weighty, like, oh, fear of God, like, that doesn't sound fun. And if we don't talk about it, I believe that we, what we end up with are sort of extreme theological caricatures of God. Um, on one hand, you might end up imagining, when you just think of the fear of God, you might imagine like angry street preacher Jesus with a megaphone and uh, uh, inflammatory signage. So that's, that's like one sort of like caricature of God that you might imagine when you think of the fear of God. Uh, conversely, if you just don't ever talk about the fear of God, what that means, um, and just kind of put it out of your mind or maybe somehow convince yourself, like, yeah, that's, that's Old Testament stuff. We, we, we kind of steer, steer clear of that stuff. We're all about Jesus. And so you get this sort of caricature of God as like, you know, slightly androgynous, skinny jean Jesus um, rocking a Snuggie and holding a baby lamb. Another sort of picture, a caricature, if you will, of God. 
Um, and some of you are like, well, what's wrong with skinny jean Jesus? Like, I'm, I'm kind of, sounds New Testament to me. Fair enough. Um, I don't know what to tell you. Maybe he was wearing a Snuggie, and perhaps Jesus did have a pet lamb. Um, that's not the point. What does it really mean to fear God? And is that good news? How does it help me relate to God for who he really is? Not just who I wish he was or YouTube told me he is, but according to his own self-disclosure, he has revealed himself. He's introduced himself. And so the invitation is to get to know him for who he really is, what he's really like. And that's why it's important that we wrestle with this topic. So, question. What did Noah understand about fearing God that can help us sort of run the race in such a way so as to win? If we imagine following Jesus, that life journey, trusting and obeying Jesus as our leader, our good shepherd, our friend, and there's this race set before us, and there's a prize. It's a good prize. The destination is where we want to be. What does winning the race look like, and what does Noah understand about the fear of God that might help us to run in such a way so as to win the prize? Number one, Noah understood that because of all the evil that was consuming the world, his world, at that time, something terrible was about to happen. Noah understood that God wasn't bluffing. With a grieving heart, God was about to destroy his beloved creation. This is uh, Genesis chapter 6. It's where we find the story of Noah. This is what it says. The Lord saw... This is a long time ago. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah understood, Noah understood that God's radical act of destruction was also a means of radically merciful deliverance. In other words, the power of God that he wielded to wipe out evil was the same power that he used to rescue those who would have otherwise have been consumed by that evil if he had simply let it run its course. We actually see this sort of play out in different narratives over and over and over throughout Scripture. On one hand, God executes judgment. He does something terrible, powerful, awful as an act of deliverance. For those who are crying out 
Lord, mercy. Lord, help. Lord, judge our enemies. Lord, there's injustice running rampant in the earth. Can you save us? And this God will act. And on one hand, when God acts, it's terrifying. His power is real. And at the same time, that same terrifying power is actually a radical act of his merciful commitment to rescue his children. Those who would cry out, Lord, save us. Which makes the fear of God an utterly terrifying and wonderfully comforting reality. You guys like paradoxes? I love the word paradox. One of my mentors has told me several times, um, there's a good chance you're doing relatively decent theology if you keep running into paradoxes. The fear of God is an utterly terrifying and wonderfully comforting reality. Uh, That's the first C word. We're going to do all C words this morning if you're trying to take notes. Number two. Noah understood that the fear of God is a far greater force than any other fear in this world. Fear of criticism, fear of rejection, fear of betrayal, fear of exclusion, fear of punishment, or any other kind of human action and justice or even violence in this world. Noah stood secure in the face of a whole world that was against him because he revered God's standards as far weightier than man's ever-shifting threats and popular opinions. No, I cannot. But I will read to you the words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 10. Jesus puts it this way. So have no fear of them. He's talking to his disciples. We're going to go out into the world and tell everyone, look, this is who God is. This is what he's like. This is what he's going to do. This is his great victory won for you on the cross. And they're, 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 they're beginning to build up to it. And they're going to go out and Jesus is telling them, don't be afraid as you face opposition. He says, so have no fear of them for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. This is Matthew 10. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. And even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore... You are of more value than many sparrows. To fear God is to put the fear of everything else in its right perspective. It reframes what's elsewhere referred to as the fear of man. The fear of rejection, the fear of betrayal, the fear of being criticized or misunderstood or labeled someone or something you're not. The fear of God gives us courage to take our stand, even when it feels like the whole world is against you. 
Um, I've been thinking about this for weeks and weeks. I knew we were going to come here for a couple of months. I knew we would end up talking about Noah and the fear of God. I've been praying about it, wondering to myself, how, how can we really understand this? The whole subject matter has been so twisted and retwisted and misunderstood so many times. How can we understand this? So I commissioned a young artist to, um, to create some imagery. I'm not going to share that with you now. I think it's relatively self-explanatory. You have the devil in the middle. That's evil. The little guy is quite nervous, sweating. And there's a much bigger man standing behind the devil who apparently doesn't realize what's about to happen. Oh, and if you can't read it, it says the holy, what is it? The holy Bible, the holy Bible. <clears throat> Next slide, please. Same image, all of a sudden, the little guy who's terrified realizes that there's a bigger guy on his side. That's the fear of God. It reframes all other fears that we might face in this life. And all of a sudden, the little guy who is terrified of what the evil man might do to him realizes that God is on his side. God is on the side of those who cry out to him. And so I might fear God, but I have no fear of man. Uh, that's Judah's picture, by the way. He drew that, my nine-year-old son. This makes the fear of God an incomparable source of courage. Courage to stand up for what's true and just and loving, even if the whole world takes a stand against you. Number three, Noah understood that the fear of God can serve as a great catalyst for, quote-unquote, coming to one's senses. The fear of God can serve as a great catalyst for coming to one's senses, but, but there's very little to motivate when it comes to lasting, long-term, intimate relationship. Bear with me. The fear of God can wake one up. I remember... Um, I think I've probably shared this story before, maybe more than once. Um, but it was, it was the one time in my life I can for sure point back to and say, I almost died. I was this close. I've done quite a few stupid things in my life. Um, but there was one time in particular where I was this close. I was coming home from a party. So I was like maybe, what, 20, 21? Yeah, probably about 21. I'd been drinking all night. Um, and thought, yeah, I should probably drive home. That, that would be a good idea. And I'm going down the freeway, and I just I passed out. I was so exhausted, honestly. I didn't black out from, like, being drunk. It was more just, just exhausted, exhausted from, from a long night of just partying. And uh, next thing I know, I'm awake, only this time, I'm, only now I'm not on the freeway. I'm, I'm off the freeway, like careening down like the side of a hill. 
um, and just branches smashing my windshield. I'm like bouncing all the, freaking out, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? We've all been there. We've all been there. <clears throat> this is before Jesus saved me from my stupidity. Um, and uh, finally came to a halt, jumped out of my little Ford Ranger, and uh, I'm like just panicked, bewildered, and I'm looking around, and my, my truck is just demolished, just absolutely wrecked. Somehow, I'm like fine. I'm, I managed to sort of like climb up this little hill, make my way back to the freeway, and um, I'm like, man, what do I do? I can't, can't call the police because I'll, I'll probably get like a DUI or just something terrible. So I thought, I'll just start walking. I'll just walk. I'll walk all the way home. It took me like four hours to get home. I walked all night, finally got home, and, uh, and nothing really happened other than I just lost my, my truck. And, uh, but I remember the whole walk home just thinking to myself, I almost died, I almost died, I almost died, I almost died. And if I had, oh, goodness, I, I'm, I'm thinking, I think I would go to hell. Like I, and I wasn't even a believer at this point, but something in me, I'm like, I, I'd be, I'd be in, mm, yep, I'm not right with God. Maybe I should get right with God. And like, I just felt this, like, I like this terror come over me. Like I almost died and like, I'm, I'm not ready. I'm not right. If any, I'm like way, way not right. Totally left. I'm like, I need to get, and this was just like this overwhelming realization The fear of God can serve as like a catalyst to cause you to wake up one morning, perhaps come to your senses and think, man, what, what am I doing with my life? What if God were to finally deal with sin and evil and to judge the world like he's promised to do? What, where would I land? What would that look like? It's a terrifying thought. It can serve as a great catalyst. For 120 years, Noah's whole world lived under the imminent threat. We're told 120 years. Lived under the imminent threat of divine judgment. And you know how many people actually responded? Eight. Out of the whole world. Just Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. Just his family. Apparently, the threat of judgment wasn't motivational enough for, like, mass revival to break out. And why did Noah, why did Noah actually trust and obey God? It wasn't because he was living under constant threat of punishment, but it's because Noah walked with God. He knew God. That's why he trusted him. He was aware of the imminent threat, and there was that reverent fear, as we're told, but it wasn't because of fear of punishment that Noah trusted God. It was because he walked with God and, and enjoyed favor in the eyes of the Lord. You guys like paradoxes? This, again, comes up over and over and over th throughout Scripture. Um, the narrative is retold in like, different ways as, as we sort of track 
as we follow the story of God, as we travel with his people, those who are interacting with him from Abel to Enoch to Noah and on and on and on. One of my favorite and I think most explicit examples of this is found in Exodus chapter 20. Let me read this to you guys. This is Exodus 20, verses 18 through 21. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. This is after um, God's people who had been enslaved in Egypt for like 400 plus years had been delivered. So like these, again, an example of God's like terrible wrath being poured out as he judged Pharaoh in Egypt as an act of radical mercy in delivering those who were crying out. These things go together. It's actually all pointing to the cross, but we'll get there. They had been delivered, and now they're at the base of Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai. And God's like on this mountain, and experiencing the thunder and the smoke, and they're, they're terrified because they're rational, they're normal, they're human. And this is, this is what it says, Exodus 20, they stayed at a distance, at a distance, far off, and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So there's something about being confronted with the um, awful reality of God's like greatness, his power. Like when you come into the presence of a supernova or something like that, it's a very rational emotion to like tremble and want to like fall on your face before like God Almighty. That's not a complicated uh, notion. But does that cause me to want to draw near to God and enjoy some sort of long-lasting, intimate relationship with him. This is where we come to yet another paradox. So this is Exodus 20. 17 pages later, it's basically 17 pages of Moses on the mountain talking to God, and God's like, all right, here's, here's, here's the deal. Here's the covenant. Here are the rules. These are my laws. Okay, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If not, I'm, I'm going to have to deal with you. There will be severe consequences. The, he breaks it all down. 17 pages later, you know, what, you know what happens? You know how long the fear lasts? 17 pages. Because what happens next, in Exodus 32, God's beloved decides to go and find a new lover. The golden calf. You guys, you guys ever hear about this? Some of you are like, what? Golden calf? This is weird. God's people are like, whatever happened to Moses? He's been gone like a month now. Uh, hey, priest, pastor, Aaron was his name. Come here. Get up. We need you to make us a new idol. I don't know what happened to God or his man, um, but it's been over a month now. I mean, a month. Come on. Give me a break. We need a new God. And they basically committed adultery. 
That's, that's the imagery. That's, that's the sort of like the word picture that the Bible uses. The fear of God can be a great catalyst in terms of causing one to come to their senses, like being confronted with the awful reality of my sin. That's actually not a bad thing. Not a bad thing at all. Sometimes we need to be woken up. But that's the beginning. That's the beginning. Living in constant fear of punishment doesn't compel one to want to get close. It doesn't motivate one towards intimacy. Eventually, I learned what Noah understood, that the fear of God can work as a great catalyst for awakening one to the consequences of sin, but only God's love, which, by the way, is not contrary to the fear of the Lord. If we had more time, we would look at so much more. Only God's love, his deep, intimate, untamable love is able to captivate and ultimately fulfill the deepest desires of the human heart. That is our desire to give and receive love. The fear of God is a comfort, it's a source of courage, can serve as a catalyst, but only God's love can captivate the human heart. Which brings us to Jesus. Noah feared God and walked with him and trusted him and revered him enough to build an ark when God said, get ready, I'm about to deliver you and your family from evil and it's going to be a wild ride. You would do well to keep your arms and legs in the boat at all times. But this is only a foreshadow of the greater rescue mission to come. Last verse, Um, Isaiah chapter 11, it's a relatively famous ancient foretelling of the Messiah, the rescuer who was to come. Let me read these words to you. It might sound familiar to some of you. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, talking about the lineage of King David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is about Jesus. Jesus knew what it meant to fear the Lord, and his delight was in that. That's something we're meditating on. Because of God's great love for the world, it's John chapter 3, because of God's great love for the world, he built an ark himself. Or rather, God the Father and the Son of God built an ark together. And he has invited all of creation to turn around and come inside 
And in Christ Jesus, we are not only delivered from the chaotic waters of this broken world, but even from the chaos and the evil that lingers in our own hearts. From fear of punishment, from fear of man, from fear of being cast out. Because in Jesus, we're not only given a new start, but we're given a new heart. Hearts that are constantly being flooded with his love, being filled with the Holy Spirit himself. Now, how do you feel about the fear of God? It's a delight. It's weighty. You might have different emotions about it depending upon where you are in life. If you're flying down a freeway doing about 80 half drunk in the middle of the night, um, what you might need, you know what might be really, really loving of our Creator? It's an incredibly unpleasant wake-up call. <laughs> like to be violently confronted with like the reality of your sin and mine. Which is at the same time terrifying but incredibly like loving. Like thank God he spared me. But man, it, it hurt. Oh, and by the way, um, it only lasted a couple weeks. Like this sort of like fear of like, oh my gosh, I almost died. Like I got to get right with God. I need religion. And that quickly wore off. That's the nature of fear. We quickly find something else to distract us with. You could be at a place in your life where you're like, look, I don't, I don't need to be reminded of how difficult and painful life can be and the feeling that perhaps God is mad at me. I, oh, I know that emotion. But is God for me? Is he, able, is he able to wield his power in such a way as to mercifully rescue me? Can he be strong on my behalf? Mm, there is comfort in the fear of God. Or perhaps, perhaps you like, well, let's just say like all of us, okay, this is a human phenomenon. The fear of what others think. Of course, some of us are really clever and we try to convince ourselves, like, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm punk rock. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're angsty. You're angsty. <laughs> and you're, you're probably, uh, you probably struggle with the fear of what others think so much that in your angst, you've had to convince yourself that you actually don't care at all. And you call it whatever. You, you label it something that sounds cool and hipster or whatever. Um, is that mean? I don't know. Maybe it's just my opinion. I think, though, we all struggle with the fear of what others think about us. And we need to know that there is a, a source of courage that empowers us to, to transcend the fear that constantly just sort of um, radiates all around us. What are they going to think? What will they say? What if they leave? What if they lie? What if they let me down again? And we can be driven by just the fear 
fear of being punished, fear of consequences, fear of being left out, fear of not being enough. And God says, fear me. Learn what it means to walk, to delight in the fear of God and watch me empower you, encourage, to overcome, to fear no one and nothing, not in some angsty, lying-to-yourself, denial kind of way, but like, like, no, I only fear God and God alone. He's my maker. Hmm. So it depends on kind of where you're at in life. There's an emotional spectrum. Can I invite the worship team, Hillary and Adam and Aaron, to join me up front, please? <clears throat> been uh, wrestling with the all-important question that every preacher eventually has to get to at some point in his sermon, and that is, so like, what do we do with this? These are interesting ideas, something to think about for a minute or so. Where do, where do I go with this? What do I do? What's the application? It's a tough one. It's a tough one. How do you apply the fear of God? Uh, I must confess, I'm still struggling. I'm still wrestling with that question. And I thought I, I, we might do well to just kind of set in the tension before we move too quickly to like, okay, but what do, what do I do with this? What's the application? How does this improve my life? Etc. Maybe we would do well just to sort of like, let's just set in this. Where am I at? What's going on emotionally? What would my life look like if I came to understand the fear of God like Noah? How would my family be impacted? What might my, my, my marriage and my relationships with my children look like if I was to fear God like that? And what about Jesus? At the end of the day, this is really all about God's great rescue mission. His great love for the world that compelled him to come down. Because he doesn't want to punish us. He doesn't want any of us to perish. It's not his motive. That's not his desire. That's why he's been waiting so long. So long. Lord, when? Lord Jesus, when? A little bit longer. A little bit longer. I'm building an ark, and I'm inviting the world, get on board. The day will come when evil will be vanquished once and for all. Are you on? Are you in? Do you receive my invitation? What do you do with that? What do you do with Jesus? You've got to answer that question someday. Now. There are at least four people in this room who have for sure answered this question because I've had conversations with all of you uh, this week, um, which is why we have a baptismal set up here this morning. 
Um, I love, love that it just so happened that this morning was Baptism Sunday because here we are with the water. You know, in, in the New Testament, elsewhere, I've really got to land. I've really got to land. I'm trying to land. I'm kind of bouncing off the runway now. <clears throat> the water, it, it's reminiscent of the flood. And the ark passed through the water, and in Christ, we passed through the waters of baptism, being cleansed, being made new, just as creation itself was being cleansed and made new. In Jesus, as we surrender to him, as we, we hide in Jesus, we're cleansed. The flood washes over us, and we're not destroyed. We're not left in the grave. We're raised up again, and we experience new life. And God's perfect love begins to fill us. And he begins to drive out fear wherever it lingers. Fear of anything else where it sort of lingers in our hearts. God pours his love, pours his love. He floods us with his love in Jesus. That's baptism. Um, if you are getting baptized this morning, then um, you guys are already up front. If you want to start to make your way up to the front pew, if you need to like quickly run to the restroom and take off your outer garments or change, you've got maybe just two or three minutes, um, don't freak out. Like We, we will wait for you. <laughs> and uh, come on back up, take a seat in the front pew. And then we are going to have uh, four baptisms this morning. The kids will be joining us up front. Can we all stand together, please? <clears throat>